Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden is shifting into political high gear as Democrats scored a couple of major wins in primaries this week, including Alaska Democrat Mary Pelota beating former Governor Sarah Palin, who was widely expected to fill the open Alaska congressional seat. Ukraine launched its long-awaited counteroffensive against Russia as Moscow cuts off gas to Europe as international inspectors finally arrive at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant uh, that has become a Russian firebase. China continues to exacerbate tensions with its increasing intrusions into Taiwanese airspace, prompting Taipei this week to shoot down a civilian Chinese drone. Japan struck a defense cooperation agreement with Israel as Jerusalem's arch enemy, Iran, attempted to hijack an unmanned sail drone explorer surface vessel operated by the United States Navy in the Arabian Gulf. The attempt by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy's Shahid Baziar uh, was thwarted by a Seahawk helicopter and the coastal patrol ship USS Thunderbolt that was operating nearby. And reflections on Mikhail Gorbachev, who passed away uh, this week. He was the last president of the Soviet Union, whose strategy of perestroika and glasnost, of restructuring and openness, changed Russia forever, uh, and in many respects paved the way for Vladimir Putin uh, to take office uh, a decade uh, after he stepped down from power. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome. Great to have you on the program. Uh, and before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Michael, uh, Congress is out of session and you were supposed to be off uh, this week, but you're joining us to discuss uh, the primaries and what they mean, uh, including Sarah Palin's loss. She was widely expected to win uh, the special election. She was be beaten by Democrat Mary Peltola, uh, who will become the first uh, native Alaskan to go to Congress. So certainly a historic, uh, a historic figure in her own right uh, or soon to be or is. Uh, anyway, walk us through what these primary races mean uh, ultimately, um, because it it suggests, as as you've been saying for a little bit of time, that Democrats may have a little bit more wind at their backs than uh, many people were going to give them credit for. Yeah. So it's, it's really fascinating. If you look at every special election since the Dobbs decision, the Republicans have underperformed in each one, even the ones that they've won, they've still underperformed in each one. And then last week, we spoke about the New York 19 race, the open seat in New York, which the Republicans were favored to pick up and did not. And Democrat Pat Ryan defeated Mark Molinaro. And I've spoken to you know, several people in the Republican leadership about that race. And the spin on that was, well, you know, Mark Molinaro was much more of a moderate, so he didn't energize a lot of the conservative base to come out. So he wasn't a wacko crazy, and uh, a lot of those people did come out and vote. Okay, but now what we saw last night with Sarah Palin is the complete opposite, right? So, you know, I, I remember- you, we talked you mean you're saying that she's not moderate and measured? 
no, no, no. Let me give you a point, right? So, um, you know, we talked last week. It looked like Sarah Palin was headed to Congress because uh, she was ahead uh, by three points over Nick Begich. And if you combine the two together, it was about 60% of the vote for people voting Republican. 40% of the vote was going to Mary Peltola. But since Mary Peltola didn't have a majority, they went to their ranked choice system. And you would assume that people who voted for Begich first would vote for Palin second and vice versa. But it turns out that the Begich voters voted for Mary Peltola as their second choice. Again, rejecting crazy and to some degree, I think, rejecting uh, some of the Trumpism that's out there. So that took everybody uh, by surprise. And now that race will be run again in November uh, and it will be the ranked choice system again. And I'm, you know, a lot of Republicans are confident that Mark Begich now will be the guy. But I'm asking them, why do we think that the same thing won't happen again in November? Because Sarah Palin will be on the ballot and it will be ranked choice voting again. And no one seems to have a good answer. And, and since uh, that defeat, um, the you know, uh, Cook, who everybody relies on here, has really changed ratings in uh, in I think five new races, all favoring, uh, all leaning more toward Democrats. So the Peltola race was a lean or likely Republican. Now he's rating as a toss up in the general. And several other races have gone from lean Democrat to likely Democrat. And some have gone from toss up to lean Democrat. But at the same time, I would not get too excited yet about Democrats holding the House. Um, because remember, two, two years ago, uh, we all thought the Democrats were going to expand the majority in the House. Uh, and instead, in 2020, the Republicans gained uh, 12 seats and came within five seats of getting the majority. And if you look at the lay of the land right now, I mean, there are um, several Democratic seats, that were four incumbent Democratic seats that are considered likely Republican pickups. There are six seats held by the Democrats that are lean Republicans. That's 10 right there. And then there are 24 Democratic held seats right now that Cook considers a toss up, which really can go either way. So the landscape still dramatically favors the Republicans in the House, may not be as big a majority as they thought it would be, but they still uh, have, have the odds are in their favor. And any sense yet what this means for composition of defense committees or anything else, right? I mean, how you, uh, right? I mean, one would imagine Alaska always uh, looms large in American security, especially now with concerns over China and Russia, uh, right? I mean, so you can, you know, sort of sense that maybe uh, the, the new member from Alaska, uh, who is the member from Alaska uh, in the House, uh, might uh, play a role. I mean, any, any sense yet on what it means for assignments uh, at, at this point? Uh, you know, I think for, for her, she's certainly not a progressive. I mean, she's uh, reflecting her state fairly well. She's very pro oil and gas industry. Uh, she's very pro Second Amendment because, you know, guns are a very important way of life up in Alaska. So I don't think we need to worry about her as far as defense goes. Uh, I don't think she would not get on the Armed Services Committee, at least not uh, not now. I don't know. Even if she wants it, she wouldn't be able to get it until after the election. And even then, uh, it depends on what the ratios are, depending on how big the Republican majority is, if, if there is one. But if we're looking at a tight um, majority for the Republicans next year, there are definitely implications for defense because, you know, that means that the Republicans will not be able to pass an NDAA and pass appropriations bills without Democratic votes. And that would mean if McCarthy's speaker, he's going to have to go to whoever the leader is. If Pelosi leaves, it would probably be Hakeem Jeffries or Adam Schiff to get them to deal with the cut deals. And that will mean, you know, supplying more money than Republicans would want for non-defense domestic discretionary spending. And we've seen the Republican conference before eat their speakers alive, chew them up and spit them out, like we saw with John Boehner and like we seen, saw with, uh, with Paul Ryan. And this is what Boehner had to do in order to get things done was to work with Democrats. So, you know, if the Republicans decide they don't want to work with Democrats, the risk of long-term CRs 
uh, become very real in the next Congress. Uh, but, but Boehner had a baseline better relationship with the other side of the aisle than McCarthy does, right? I mean, there are those who would argue that McCarthy has made himself somewhat more toxic uh, in part because of his positions on, right? I mean, when revelations came out that Boehner thought his own caucus was crazy, um, you know, that, that was as big of a stink as we had uh, as, as opposed to what McCarthy's dealing with now. Um, I don't know. Look, I think what some members say publicly are different than what some say privately. All right. And uh, well, as the know, tapes prove. Right. It, right. And, and, and exactly. And at the same time, a lot depends on who the Democrats leader is. I mean, look, I, I like Hakeem Jeffries and Adam Schiff a lot. Uh, and but I think if Adam, who is a close friend of mine, uh, is the leader, it makes it a little harder for Republicans, I think, to work with him in light of his role in the impeachment process and his role on the uh, previous role in the Intelligence Committee. So. Uh, it's it's a bumpy road ahead. It'll be bumpy uh, for both Republicans and Democrats as they start to seek to fill these leadership posts, depending on how big and how well they do in these elections, because there'll be a lot of finger pointing as well. Uh, well, ultimately, right. I mean, we need uh, on both sides of the aisle, most qualified people to be doing these jobs, because uh, as, as we've uh, discussed many times, it's a very important time. Um, uh, let me uh, and, and I'm very uh, appreciative that your time is very short with us, Michael. I'm going to round back on you and give you the, uh, a, a Ukraine question, uh, because unfortunately, Jim Townsend uh, can't uh, last minute wasn't able to join us uh, th- this week. Uh, Dove, uh, sort of your broader political sense, what all of this means uh, and, you know, President Biden has been under a lot of pressure from his own side about not getting out there and swinging and making the case. And he is increasingly going out there and making the case and making the case about the future of democracy. Uh, as we tape this, uh, the White House has announced that uh, later today the president is going to uh, address um, election deniers being potentially elected to important uh, roles to decide future elections. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, walk, walk us through the messaging, the president's messaging, the outcomes of the primaries and what you think that bodes uh, for our national security as we go into November. Okay, thanks. A couple of things. First, on the Alaska primary, um, you got to remember, yes, she's probably going to go on the uh, Armed Services Committee, but that's the Armed Services Committee is huge. It's uh, It may be the biggest committee on the House side. I don't know, north of 56 people last time I recall. And she's going to sit in the back, in the front. And so, you know, she's not going to have a big impact, uh, but she'll be on the committee. More generally, I think that uh, where all of this may go will still depend on how much you're paying over at the gas station. And uh, as long as gas prices continue to decline, um, that's going to help the Democrats. Although, uh, if you, anybody who goes shopping at, at, at the, a food store right now can't help but notice that food prices are still going up. And that's uh, that's not in favor of the Democrats. So I'm still with Mike on this. I think the Republicans will take the House. Uh, it won't be as large a majority as, as maybe people thought. But you've got these wild cards, the, the cost of food on the one hand and the cost of gas on, on the other. In terms of Biden, um, I think he, he made a huge mistake using the term semi-fascist. Uh, I talked to interesting people up here. Part of this place where I, where I have a place is, is Trump country. And, uh, you know, you talk to flaming liberals and you talk to really super right-wingers. And the right-wingers are saying he's calling us semi-fascists. And that's just like Hillary who called us irredeemables. Uh, I think it was a mistake. 
if he wanted to say election deniers, that that's okay, then that's what they are. But to call people fascists, and they'll forget about the semi part, uh, is simply to really, really get people angry. Uh, and uh, you just don't know how that's going to play out. And it was deplorables. Uh, 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 oh, that's Clinton right. Used, used the term deplorable. uh, deplorables. Although, you know, right. I mean, the president's argumentation on this is uh, th- this has, you know, t- tendencies of fascism in terms of how the base is rallying around and supporting somebody yeah, but, who is in love, violation of, of law you, and comportment. Uh, Mike may, may disagree with me. I don't think he will. And you've been around the block as well. People don't listen to all the nuances. They're going to pick up the keyword, which is fascist. And that is really bothering them. And yet, whether it's irredeemables or whatever they were, they picked up on that word and ran with it. And if you recall, Clinton actually used that word in a context as well, but it didn't matter. That was the keyword. And the keyword in, in that speech of the presidents was fascist. Michael, uh, your sense about whether or not, I mean, because Republican motivation is actually pretty high, right? I mean, what the Democrats are doing is actually motivating a party, their own, that tends to not get motivated, right? I mean, Republican interest stays generally pretty high and pretty universally backing among Republicans in their support for Trump, right? And so the president is trying to move the center or even Republicans. And I'm sorry, but I have to say he used that word advisedly because I've heard Republican friends of mine use the word uh, the, you know, I mean, this, this is reminiscent of past fascist leaders, um, you know, as ill advises was, was it a mistake by the president? And what's sort of the sense from the Republican membership that you talked to, or even the Democratic membership? Yeah, look, I think the name calling is a mistake because people do seize on that, right? So I think I, I, I agree with Dov and I've been in- I think it's funny that he does it once and everybody seizes on it, but the other guy did it literally 40,000 times, but that didn't seem to really bother anybody. Right. But, but go it, on. It is, it is what it is, right? And I've, I've talked to members who were, um, who were upset with Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger because of the name, you know, they're calling me a liar. They're doing this, they're doing that. So, but um, let me get back to your- Is there point. any I, introspection I, that they may not be telling that may be somewhat parsimonious with the truth? Depends on who you talk to. I, and, and so I, I have this conversation regularly with members who are honest brokers who understand that the message that the base receives from Fox and Newsmax and OAN is not the truth, but yet it's hard to blame them because they don't get, they're not getting information from another place. But there are a lot of people who are spewing uh, things that are not factually correct, knowing that, um, that, they, that they are telling, not, not telling truth. One, either to appease the base or two, the people on these networks are entertainers and they're also... Um, trying to sell speaking engagements and book fees and things like that. So it's a, it's a, it's a tenuous time because the truth is really getting lost, but I'm not really convinced that the Republican basis is motivated as, as you say, because, you know, the, the Trump voter tends to be uh, a, a lot of those voters are people who don't have a history of voting. If we look at, you know, when Trump getting elected in 2016, the Republicans lost the house in 18 and in 2020, the Republicans lost the Senate and they lost the white house. So obviously America was not, happy with what the Republicans were selling. And now we see them with Trump being at the center of attention, trying to sell the same thing. And and it's not working. And with Trump not on the ballot, I don't think a lot of those folks are going to come out and vote. I mean, I think that's why we saw the Republicans make those surprising gains in 2020 in the House, which even the NRCC was stunned. They thought they were going to lose seats. The Republican voter came out. So it even states that the, the, the president lost in those specific congressional districts, enough people were voting Republican down the line, which put other people over the top that ordinarily would not have gone over the top in, the, in those elections. So and, uh, it's, to me, it's going to be a very exciting night because we're going into this with a lot of unknowns. 
And, and do you think that the semi-fascist comment really changes the dynamic all that much? Or is this more sort of, I mean, I'm not, I'm not dismissing what, uh, you know, by any stretch, what um, Dove is saying, but, but at some point, right. I mean, does, does Look, it really move a needle? And, I mean, do they become it, any more motivated than they were before you said that? No, I don't, I don't think so. Right. I think, you okay. know, it's just, it's, it adds more fuel to the fire and, it, and it's not productive for negotiations that we're going to need on a budget deal in the coming weeks and months to do the workings of government. So it'd be interesting to see what Biden says in his address tonight, you know, if he is more uh, of a uniter or more of a divider in what he has to say. Um, you uh, are going to have to punch uh, any uh, budgetary update, and I want to transition and, and bring Dove in to talk uh, a little bit about Ukraine uh, and the Ukrainian counteroffensive and sort of what uh, the congressional support meter for Ukraine and, and where it stands, right? I mean, we're, we're looking at more money. Obviously, the president authorized last week, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, sort of your, 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 your sense on where we are budgetarily and a, and a quick Ukraine update uh, before you uh, part for the next two weeks, unfortunately. Uh, sure. So um, right now, there's, there is no budget update. Nothing is happening. There are no discussions at all uh, between the House and the Senate and the White House on uh, getting, getting any kind of budget deal. So we will start to see conversations uh, beginning the week of the 12th, but uh, nothing really serious and, and detailed, although we will see uh, in September pre-conferencing beginning on the NDAA. That, that ball will start to move. Um, you know, as far as Ukraine, um, you know, I think they were wise in the package that they spent they sent last time because that buys them a lot of time. Um, and I think we'll have to see what happens to elections. I don't see support slipping, but I am concerned, especially when it comes to the Senate, about uh, some of these folks like J.D. Vance in Ohio and Blake Masters in uh, Nevada, but not about Arizona, who are folks who will not be supportive of, of Ukraine aid. And, uh, you know, we, and we, I don't think we need more voices added to, to that course at a very tenuous time. Michael, thanks as always for joining us. Always a pleasure. Uh, have a great trip, uh, a great uh, time off in between that. Look forward to having you back on again soon. Thank you. Uh, Dove, uh, Ukraine uh, has at long last uh, launched its counteroffensive. Um, uh, this is as international uh, energy uh, agency inspectors show up at the Zaporizhia plant. It was in an arduous time there, uh, but the group is trying to do its fact-finding mission. Obviously, a lot of concerns that, um, you know, I mean, the, the Russians are using it as a fire base for a very specific reason. Um, what do you make of the, of the, of the counteroffensive, and how does the nuclear issue play into this, or does it, right? I mean, it's more of a terror weapon it's it's both a terror weapon and a very important fire base. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, I think it's more the, the fire base than the terror weapon. Um, look, you know, they're, they're, they're really taking high risks playing around with a nuclear facility because uh, you just don't know where the winds are going to blow. And if the winds blow in the wrong direction, um, Russia's got a problem with NATO that goes far beyond the kind of support NATO's giving Ukraine right now. So that that's a factor to consider uh, in terms of the counteroffensive. Uh, Ukrainians would like to get hold of ATACMS. There's talk about that happening. And that, of course, gives them a 190 mile range. And that would allow them to strike deep into Russia. Um, the administration is still trying to figure out whether that's what they want to let the Ukrainians do. And it goes to a much larger issue, which is being debated uh, not just in, in uh, the administration, uh, but especially in Europe, which is 
what do we really want? Do we want the Ukrainians to uh, pretty much hold off where they are and essentially accept losing 15 to 20 percent of their territory? Or do we want to support a major counteroffensive and not know how that all ends? Um, and there is a difference between the Nordic Baltic states on the one hand and the French and the Germans on the other, in particular with the British tending to side with the Nordic Baltics. And in all of that regard, I, I point out that a Danish defense minister was here, is here this week. I think he's actually meeting with uh, Secretary Austin today. And he made, he made it clear that the whole mood in Denmark has changed. You know, they had voted in, in 1992, actually, 30 years ago to opt out of the European defense, uh, the nascent uh, EU defense system uh, and stayed out for 30 years. And then at the end of May, they have a vote, uh, a referendum on it, and two thirds of the Danes voted to go in. And the, the minister made it clear, this is Ukraine. So this is yet another great victory for Mr. Putin. He's getting everybody in NATO to realize that um, this is serious stuff. But as to whether and how they support Ukraine over the longer term, that's still very much uh, up in the air. And quite honestly, it's not just a matter of money. It's a matter of the kind of pressure that they might put on Zelensky. Uh, on the other hand, Boris Johnson, who's on his way out the door from number 10 Downing Street, was back in Ukraine again. And if Liz Truss becomes the prime minister, she's currently foreign minister of the UK, She's every bit as strong uh, in support of the, of the Ukrainians as, as Johnson was. So you've got this kind of split in NATO that's going to have to be resolved. And uh, ultimately, it's, it's going to be our money. And it looks like for the time being, at least, we'll see what happens after the elections. Um, there's strong bipartisan support to keep the money coming. Patrick, uh, thanks very much uh, for your uh, patience. Uh, and you look as uh, closely uh, to what the Russians are doing in, in Ukraine as you do uh, what uh, China uh, is doing in the Pacific, uh, obviously. Um, what, do, what do you see as you look at this conflict and how it's unfolding and how the Russian, uh, Russians continue to try to use uh, energy as a weapon? Um, you know, we see every week, oh, it's a turbine problem. Oh, we fixed the turbine. And then something else happens and the Russians cut the gas off uh, again, which is, uh, which is what they've done, right? I mean, their worst nightmare is Europe actually topping off its tanks and actually having enough gas, which it looks like is, is where they're going as long as things stay the same, uh, which is one of the reasons why they're doing what they're doing. What do, you, what do you see when you look at what the Russians are doing and how they're progressing and how that should be adjusting how we think about Chinese friends um, who are above doing the same thing, right? I mean, they cut off rare earths to Japan. That you know, China will use these mechanisms as they try to do in isolating uh, Australia, for example, and punishing it after calling for a, a COVID investigation. What what do you see at this point in the conflict and recent events uh, that we need to be bearing in mind as we um, as as this you know continues? Well, Russia's invasion in February wasn't the beginning of their war against Ukraine, uh, which arguably began uh, a decade earlier in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the Donbass. But um, I think they are increasingly worried about their unlimited objectives being stymied by Western opposition, by NATO's opposition supporting Ukraine. And as a result, 
they are reaching for more tools, including weaponizing energy, um, including the threat of nuclear uh, radiological damage. Um, and there, if I can just make a quick aside, because of the death of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev uh, this week, uh, you know, the man who helped in the Cold War, in effect, uh, but then also as a reaction in Russia brought about the rise of Putin uh, and Putin's very uh, grand ambitions to put together uh, more of a, a greater Russia. Um, I'm just reminded of my father-in-law arriving in Moscow. He's uh, sh you know, shaving one Monday morning um, in April. Um, and uh, he hears on the BBC, which he's able to get at the embassy, um, that there is a uh, reactor uh, failure potentially in Chernobyl uh, and that radiological matter particles may be heading towards Sweden. He gets on the phone right away to the US uh, Army in Europe. Uh, he was a former nuclear weapons officer. And he says, we better get a radiological monitoring team here in Moscow right away. They're able in 48 hours to assemble with all their technology, a, a group that comes into Moscow and the Russians are kind of stunned, but they, they know they need this kind of technical help. And so they let them, they waved them in because they all wanted to know whether Moscow was gonna be contaminated being only 700 uh, you know, kilometers away from Chernobyl. The winds were blowing in the other direction, but um, that was the concern. I'm just reminded, that was a safety issue was a problem that Gorbachev was concerned about. Now you've got Putin who wants to weaponize safety, right? He wants to, you know, unsafety, you know, so he wants to, you know, so whether it's the nuclear reactor or whether it's energy shortages this winter for Germany and, and, the, and the, in the world, um, he wants to put people and make them feel as insecure as possible because he's not getting his unlimited ends in, in Ukraine. That's in a nutshell how I see that issue. And I want to talk about uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's uh, legacy uh, at, at the end of the program, because uh, certainly um, just an amazing historical figure, uh, one who made a tectonic change uh, at an important time. And you could look and say that the country did not live up to what the ideal was. Uh, and then that raises a lot of other questions, right? I mean, is it in the Russian psyche? You know, Russians will tell you, oh, we're an unruly people. We need somebody with a firm hand. And they use that to justify, um, you know, why Putin is better. Because under Putin, there is at least stability. We prefer stability to instability. Um, you know, and, and I think many people didn't recognize exactly the magnitude of the Soviet Union's uh, problems. Um, let me um, ask you now, uh, Patrick, first about uh, the uh, Taiwanese uh, shooting down uh, the Chinese drone. I mean, obviously, Beijing has been doing all it can to maintain the level of provocations. We've seen the number uh, of aircraft uh, rising for very many months um, in, in what is a pattern, right? I mean, the, the Chinese are very good at changing the overall conditions, right? Move goalposts, as we discussed in terms of the exercises they were con conducting around Taiwan. Uh, do different kinds of things, shoot missiles over Taiwan. Um, what do you, what, what does this, and, and we should say during the Cold War, both of, you know, Taiwan was shooting down Chinese planes, the Chinese were shooting down Taiwanese planes, the Chinese were shooting down US U-2 spy planes that were flown by Taiwanese pilots uh, heroically to gather intelligence on, on China then. Um, you know, where, where are we in the context, uh, right? I mean, what does this episode tell us in the context of where we're going um, and, and what it is we should be preparing for? Well, since the beginning of August and Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taipei, we've seen heightened uh, tensions over the Taiwan issue. So both the mainland versus Taiwan, and especially in U.S.-China relations, and those have been essentially sustained to this 
now beginning of September. In fact, there's another high-level visit going on in Taiwan as I speak. Uh, Arizona Governor Ducey's there, um, less because of the security issues or more because of the semiconductor investment that uh, TSMC is uh, investing in Arizona. But nonetheless, from the mainland's point of view, it's another high-level U.S. official uh, interfering with their internal affairs from their narrative perspective. So you've got this heightened tensions, and now you have uh, the very first ever drone shootdown by Taiwan of uh, a Chinese drone um, flying in its near airspace. And there were three uh, sensitive issues uh, here. One of them is just the proximity. This is the nearest spit of land, part of the Gemin Islands, um, you know, little uh, uh, lion islet, uh, which is four kilometers away from, you know, uh, the PRC's uh, proper territory. Um, and um, so you've got no distance in between them. You have a history there. That's where that's the front line of where the PLA was stopped by KMT forces back in the 1950s and 1949 right. first, but then also uh, fought off in the 50s uh, in skirmishes. And then finally, you've got uh, a drone involved. And, and the fact is that drone technology, as we've seen in the Ukraine war, is a fast moving uh, operational issue for conflict. Uh, and it can happen very quickly. And, and the difference between its offensive uh, strike, something, by the way, that the Japanese defense minister is just asking to put in his budget. He wants he wants he wants uh, strike drones uh, in his budget. That's a controversial issue back in Japan. But meanwhile, we've seen in Ukraine uh, the use of drones, both as an equalizer for Ukraine to go after Russian forces, but also um, uh, very defensively to, for surveillance and so on. So it can, these drones, you know, drones are increasingly part of the battlefield and the, and the blurring of peace and war continues uh, in, in part because of these technologies. So that's where we are with Taiwan and that's why this is so important. And meanwhile, you've got Taiwan trying to throw up its own silicon shield as it's been called. The fact that it's, it's the, uh, you know, central to the global advanced chip market and that's including China as well as the United States and Japan and others. Um, you know, China bought uh, in last year alone uh, $430 billion in semiconductors, and, and more than a third of them were from Taiwan. So it just shows you how Taiwan is part of the critical supply chain as well, So, which is ironic because the drones are relying very much upon these semiconductor chips as well. So you have um, a, a very complicated security situation where you've got heightened tensions. Nobody wants to go to war, but the fear that China could eventually use force is real. Um, there's a whole other debate going on, by the way, in War on the Rocks, it's worth reading. It's kind of a critique of uh, a, an interesting, important analysis that was done on China's ability to do an amphibious uh, attack against Taiwan. And, and that goes back to a, a May uh, sort of study in, in which it found it would be very difficult to try to do that now. Um, but um, that could still be overconfident because these capabilities from China are growing. And the fact that you've got drones now flying, you know, right over uh, Taiwan uh, shows that these issues are only going to get more and more tense and triggers could become happy. And that would be uh, something that could escalate. And that's the concern here. And and then that raises the question, it goes back to Ukraine that I think Dove was raising this in effect, was saying, how open-ended are our objectives? How open-ended is the U.S. defense of Taiwan? Um, you know, would we come to the defense if China attacked, you know, took over one of the islets uh, because of a drone strike? Um, who knows? Uh, you know, that's the uncertainty here. And that's why this is 
potentially still so dangerous, and it's not going to get less dangerous in this decade. What's your sense uh, on where we're going between uh, China, Taiwan, the drone issue, uh, and you know more more broadly? Well, uh, I think Patrick's got it right, and he's also got it right about drones generally. And not all drones are, are equal. Uh, look at how the Iranian Iranians have transferred drone, drones to uh, to the Russians, uh, and they haven't performed terribly well. And in the meantime, you've got these very slow moving. Turkish drones that the Russians can't seem to stop. Um, and so it's not just obviously a matter of drones capability. It's the ability to shoot them down, which the Taiwanese just showed that they could. Uh, and that in itself should be of interest to Beijing. The Russians can't shoot down uh, a very, very slow moving drone. And yet the Taiwanese just shot down one of theirs. Um, and so it's not just the drone. It's how you deal with it. Um, and, and we're going to talk about drones uh, and the Iranians uh, in, in, in just a moment. But, uh, Patrick, let me just go to you uh, quickly. Uh, talk to us about this uh, agreement between uh, Japan and Israel. And what does it mean? Because it was an agreement that I think caught a lot of people uh, a little bit by surprise. Well, Japan has been investing a lot of political capital over the years, um, especially during uh, Prime Minister Abe's reign. And he made a couple of high-level visits to Israel. Um, but Kishida, Prime Minister Kishida is continuing the defense cooperation that we've seen uh, start to flourish. There's almost $3 billion of direct foreign investment from Japan into the high-tech sector in Israel. Um, and uh, this latest deal uh, purportedly deals in partly with uh, creating laser technologies to shoot down drones, by the way, uh, as well as building up cyber capacity, which frankly has been a real weakness in, in, in Japan, which is ironic given the fact that there's such a high-tech uh, society. Nonetheless, um, you, you know, you have a, a flourishing uh, agreement here between two democracies that are uh, in different theaters, different regions, and yet find themselves needing to share information more, have growing technological uh, interests together, uh, and face a, a constellation of, of common uh, potential threats, especially sort of gray zone threats that uh, could intrude like, like drones and other issues. So it's, it's, a, it's a very consequential thing. It's also obviously you're dealing with America's uh, great ally and, and uh, you, know, you know, two great American friends, um, you know, are cooperating. So from a U.S. perspective, that's good news uh, in terms of network security. Indeed, it is. And Israel, of course, uh, you know, has some extraordinary technology, uh, not, not just in lasers, but air and missile defense and across uh, across the piece. Um, uh, Dove, um, I, I want to get your sense uh, on what Iran's uh, game is. It's been stepping up attacks uh, against uh, U.S. forces, U.S. Uh, forces striking back uh, in the Middle East. Uh, at the same time, we we had an IRGCN, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy uh, ship try to grab a U.S. Uh, Navy sail drone uh, explorer uh, unmanned surface uh, vehicle. I think that's a first. I don't know if anybody else on the high seas and international waters has tried to do this, uh, and they were thwarted. Um, and all of this is is coming as the United States and it's uh, continues trying to resuscitate the JCPOA, the, the Joint Comprehensive uh, Nuclear Agreement, uh, the nuclear deal. What, what, what does all of this mean, and what? sense does it possibly make? Because the Iranians do operate sometimes in a way that doesn't seem to make any sense, but strangely makes sense to them. It makes sense to them because uh, it's not clear that the IRGC really wants this deal. And of course, it was the IRGC that 
uh, its Navy that was behind uh, the, the sort of hijacking of the uh, uh, unmanned ship. And it was the it's the IRGC that's behind the killing of American soldiers in Iraq. So um, they've never been too excited about this deal. And of course, uh, there are reports that uh, we might still be taking them off the uh, terrorism list, but I doubt that. Uh, so, you know, what's in it for them? Uh, the real issue, I think, uh, is that uh, I still believe Iran kind of knows that it's win-win for them if there's a deal, big, you know, so what? By 2025, it all goes away anyway. And if there's no deal, they just go ahead with their uh, nuclear program. The problem is at our end, because uh, as I've mentioned before uh, on this podcast, just about everybody at senior levels of this administration had a finger in the last deal. And it's just very hard to basically abandon something that you gave so much sweat equity for. Uh, and then the issue arises, just what concessions are we gonna make? And even if we don't make concessions, because sanctions will start to get lifted virtually immediately in 2023, not all sanctions, but some, there's money coming in to, uh, to uh, the Iranians. Now, one other thing that I think is significant, uh, Benny Gantz, the uh, defense minister and deputy prime minister came to Washington. Uh, he did not meet with Mr. Biden. He did not meet with the uh, secretary of defense. They were out. And yet the Danish defense minister is meeting with the secretary of defense today. Uh, that's interesting. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that uh, our senior people haven't yet figured out exactly what our policy is regarding uh, renewing the JCPOA. And they didn't want to get uh, into any discussion uh, with senior Israelis and the national security advisor. Their national security advisor was here as well. Uh, they just didn't want to get into any discussions about it at this point. There's even a, uh, a report that uh, Mr. Uh, ben, uh, excuse me, uh, the uh, Prime Minister of Israel now tried to get hold of, uh, um, uh, Mr. Lapid tried to get hold of President Biden and could not. So that tells me that uh, there's a studious avoidance of, of getting into discussions with Israelis when we still haven't figured out what we want to do. Um, I want to uh, shift uh, to uh, really uh, quickly in the short amount of time we have to talk to uh, about the legacy of Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, the last uh, president of the Soviet Union um, that collapsed on Christmas in 1991. Um, and obviously the perestroika and the glasnost, the restructuring and the openness uh, that he rolled out after becoming uh, the, the chairman um, uh, or rather, I should say, the general secretary of the Communist Party uh, of the Soviet Union was tectonic in its impact, uh, lionized in the West, reviled in Russia, or reviled by many in Russia uh, to this day. You know, Dove, I want to get your sense as somebody who served in the Reagan administration uh, at a time when the administration was trying to figure out what direction he was going into. Margaret Thatcher famously said, uh, you know, this is somebody that we can work with, with which then opened the door. And she encouraged President Reagan uh, to uh, interact with uh, with uh, Gorbachev as somebody that we could do business with and was trustworthy. You know, give us your reflections as as somebody uh, who was serving in an administration that was focused on causing the collapse of the Soviet Union. 
Well, first of all, Gorbachev understood that uh, Ronald Reagan was uh, going to outspend him on defense and he just couldn't keep up. Uh, and that was a major factor. In fact, when I was in the Pentagon, uh, and of course, every speech I gave had to be cleared, I actually made that point, as did many others in the administration, that we're going to outspend you. And so, you know, why try to keep this up? I think he took that uh, on board and uh, decided that, he just, that the Soviet system was going the wrong way. Now, it wasn't inevitable that uh, we would wind up with a Putin. I think a lot had to do, well, and quite with some justification, that we kind of... Dove, uh, Dove that's whatever, whatever you're doing is very no, uh, loud, just oh, FYI. Oh, okay. excuse me. Let me, um, let me back up because there's somebody mowing a lawn near me. Uh, ah, okay. All right. Okay, I didn't me, hear the mowing of the lawn, but I did hear you moving. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, okay, I'll, go let, ahead. Let me try again. Uh, Three, two, one, go. Yeah, Gorbachev recognized very early on because the president made it clear and even uh, people at lower levels like mine uh, had speeches approved, which basically told uh, the, the Soviets, you're never going to outspend us. We're going to keep spending enough to really uh, make your military uh, secondary. Uh, he took that on board. He realized that uh, the, the whole system was collapsing around him. Uh, and so he did what he did. But it wasn't inevitable that, that the world would wind up with, a, or Russia would wind up with a Putin. Part of it had to do with the fact that uh, we treated uh, Yeltsin, who had his issues, and everybody knows he was an alcoholic, uh, but we treated Yeltsin and Russia in a very disdainful way, which I think is why Putin has been able to get so much support uh, because the, the Russians felt that they were a superpower and uh, we weren't treating them like that. Uh, his legacy beyond that though, uh, I have a piece that hopefully will come out in the Hill tomorrow, which looks at what, and, and I'd be very interested in Patrick's reaction, what the Chinese drew as a lesson from the Soviet collapse and how she has totally ignored it. Um, Deng Xiaoping uh, had all these think tankers, academics, government people looking at the Soviet collapse and uh, came up with a, a very different kind of uh, communism than what the Soviet version was. And it was based around the uh, social compact of uh, freer enterprise, uh, you know, a moderate approach to international affairs, not aggressiveness, uh, and uh, at the same time, preserving the party's control. Uh, she has gone in the totally opposite direction, other than preserving the party's control, aggressive overseas, mismanaging the economy. And, uh, you know, we've all talked about that. Uh, and in fact, tightening up against free enterprise, uh, which is why, you know, China's uh, GDP projections for this year keep dropping. Uh, you know, Nomura now is saying 2.8% growth. I mean, we we'll compare that to, you know, under Deng, under, you know, Deng Xiaoping or, or any of Xi's predecessors where you were talking 9% or higher, double digits. So the legacy of Gorbachev uh, was learned, I think, pardon my dog, the legacy of Gorbachev was learned by Deng Xiaoping and has been unlearned, unlearned by Xi Jinping. Patrick, uh, your, your sense on legacy and, and also uh, Dove's point, which I think is a very astute one. 
it is an astute point. Um, we, we had a great discussion with uh, Professor Hugh Strawn on the causes and consequences of war that'll be online this next week. Um, and uh, talking about the long shadow of wars, uh, in th this case, the ending of the Cold War that Gorbachev uh, chiefly contributed to, um, in the beginning now of a new onset of, if not Cold War II, uh, certainly tensions uh, that are rising with especially China as well as Russia uh, once again. So these long shadows over time, you can start to tell what has transpired and what catalyzed them. And there's no doubt that uh, Gorbachev's uh, turbulent uh, leadership in the 80s uh, made a profound difference on the world in terms of ending the Cold War, uh, but then ultimately unleashing uh, the backlash in Russia that uh, Putin led uh, and is uh, leading with a vengeance right now, probably to failure uh, in his Ukraine miscalculation. Um, but, you know, those 80s began with the, remember the uh, sort of redeployment of nuclear weapons to Europe, uh, Pershing twos and Glickums, ground launch cruise, cruise missiles. I was in Europe at the time as a student. Um, and then yet with Gorbachev, you ultimately get to the walk in the woods with President Reagan. And uh, as Doug pointed out, the recognition that economic failure and failure to inability to compete with the West meant there had to be some radical change. And so his openness of Glasnost and his reform of perestroika um, were seen as um, embrace of liberal Western values, but in fact, that's not what they were. Um, and, and as a result, um, the backlash came. And in China, uh, to, to Dove's point, um, the lessons were drawn this is definitely what not to do. Uh, do not allow your political openness to precede uh, economic strength. Uh, and in fact, uh, with Xi Jinping, get more economic strength and clamp down on the political openness that you may have had before. Um, and party discipline uh, and anti-corruption exercises, this is all part of Xi Jinping's lessons from Putin's misrule from his perspective. This is the Chinese Communist Party rule book. Um, they see this as uh, move in the other direction, uh, be more aggressive, don't show weakness, don't trust the West, um, re revise the West, don't, uh, don't accept it. Um, and so this is what Xi Jinping is doing today and, and, and Putin as well. So uh, um, we had some good years because of Gorbachev, uh, and now we are maybe ruining the, uh, you know, the day that... Um, we had such a profound change so quickly because it, it misled us into complacency. The idea of uh, the unipolar moment um, misled us into thinking that major power competition was something uh, in history, wouldn't be happening in the future. But now we see it very much is happening today. Guys, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Um, we uh, went early uh, on the program. So a programming note for everybody, we will be, um, the Sunday um, business podcast will be up on Monday uh, as uh, it is the Labor Day uh, holiday. Guys, thanks very much again for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys uh, have a terrific uh, week, a great holiday weekend, a great Labor Day, uh, and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks so very much.